So like many of Jesus's parables, this one operates on two levels. An individual level, the one where we can likely quickly identify with the story and how it would apply to us. And then the communal level, the one where we can see how it might apply to the world in which we live. Sometimes it's really easy to see the individual level, right? Sometimes it's not so easy to see how it would apply to the community. There are any number of ways that we can interpret this parable. Whether or not we are disturbed or comforted by it depends on how we identify and how we hear it. Is this parable about love or justice? Is it a parable about wanting what your neighbor has? Is it a parable about fairness? Is it a parable about grace? Is it a parable about empire and oppression? The first question is, who did you identify with at the beginning of the parable? The first hired who feel lucky to have a job, or the last hired who were wondering if their chance would come along? And as the parable moved along and the workers were paid, who did you identify with then? The last hired who felt lucky to be included at all, or the first hired who were jealous that they'd been toiling all day and treated just like the latecomer? The story doesn't really seem fair, does it? I mean, if you identify with the first hired, it certainly doesn't seem fair. But that's what we do. We reduce it all down to fair. What's fair? We have rules in place, right? There would be chaos if we didn't. First come, first served. We teach our children not to cut in line. I don't know about you, but if I'm standing in line at the bank or at the grocery store and the other line is going faster than mine, <laughs> I feel a little cheated, right? Move back and forth a lot, do it in traffic. Often I race people to the red light, right? <laughs> My favorite thing to do, though, is when I'm driving back from Denver, uh, and it does not matter. It absolutely does not matter. But I have determined in my wisdom that the people in the left lane are the ones that end up having to stay back in traffic longer because everybody thinks that's the fast lane, so there are more people in it, so the right-hand lane goes quicker. My last trip back from Denver, though, um, we were at Castle Rock. So that's how far away from Pueblo I was. And there was a guy going 60 miles an hour on the interstate with bicycles in the back of his pickup truck. I'm like, dude, 60 miles an hour. Take the side road, would you? We ended up in Pueblo at the exact same time. And in fact, I think he got to the Best Buy exit like a minute and a half quicker than I did. I was not a happy camper, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> So we're consistent, we're always kind of weighing what's fair, right? We're always keeping score, we're assessing, we're renegotiating our position in line and in life, right? This parable is blatantly not about fair. Certainly not in our understanding. I mean, after a lifetime of being of service and loving God and trying to be what God would have us be, one would think that our cloud would be a little fluffier, right? And everyone gets treated the same. Everyone. And we struggle with that, which is why the understanding of the parable as it applies to society is important, too. In his book, Parables as Subversive Speech, William Herzog explores the ways in which Jesus uses parables to teach. 
not only about the kingdom of God, but to expose inequities that are inherent in the systems in which people live. Herzog writes that sometimes he uses parables to take off some of the tragic situations that were occurring so that people who were in them could see them. He says that Jesus' parables examine systems of oppressions in order to unveil them and make them visible to people. If we were in first century Palestine, instead of 21st century United States, we would hear this story a little differently. When Jesus talks about vineyard owners, his listeners know that he is talking about someone who has a lot of land and a lot of personal resources. Vineyards take a really long time to establish, a really long time, three, four, five, six years sometimes, right? So this vineyard owner needs to have enough wealth to see himself through when the vines are not being productive. Owning a vineyard is not for the middle class. Owning a vineyard is not for the upper middle class. Foremen, who are sometimes called stewards, are the go-betweens. Right? In this parable, the owner sends him out, or her, him, supposedly, so that he can bear the brunt of the disgruntledness. The CEO is not going to go to the workers. Right? The CEO is going to send the middle manager. Now about a denarius. Right? It was uh, far from a generous wage. It wasn't even what we might call minimum wage. It was barely a subsistence wage. And the, quote, laborers were expendables. They were about 15% of the population. They were the ones who were cast out. They were cast aside. People didn't pay much attention to them. People usually didn't notice them very much. Those who were in this class fell even below the subsistence level of income. And if they didn't work every day, they would either have to beg or die of starvation. So the question that the landowner asks, why aren't you working? Herzog writes, is kind of insulting, right? Since wine was a luxury item, and the landowner could make more money from wine than he could get from peasant farmers who would farm the land to grow their grain crops, it would not be unusual for the landowner to foreclose on the subsistence farmers and then kick them off their land. So the answer to the question is, why aren't you working, could be, we would be working if you wouldn't have taken our land and our farms. So because they were day laborers, all hours of the day, this tells us two things. The vineyard owner was super rich. He had so much land and so much work that he could give it to anyone anytime. And he also underestimated the number of people that he would need. And two, unemployment was pretty high. We can see this because he can negotiate with the workers for such a crappy wage, really, right? that even at the height of harvesting season, when workers should be the ones to have the upper hand and have a relatively good wage, he can just hire them for a short period of time or any amount of time or not at all, keeping them on an erratic schedule in the weakest position possible. A modern equivalent of that would be the unpredictable schedules of our low-paid retail and service workers. Not only 
Do you not know when you're going to work? You don't know how much you're going to work. So this just isn't ancient history. Um, It's not only in feudal or slave-based economies in first century Palestine where people are exploited. Would you be surprised to know that people are exploited in capitalist systems too? Shock. I know, right? All hail the almighty capitalist system. In his book, Injustices, the Supreme Court's nearly unbroken history of comforting the comfortable and afflicting the afflicted, author Ian Milcher writes about George Mortimer Pullman, founder of the Pullman Palace Car Company. Pullman made train cars, some of the most opulent train cars ever, and this made him a very rich man. He was one of the richest men in America ever. Pullman rightly guessed that those who would spend days going across country would also spend it in luxury. Travelers lined up to board his ultra-luxurious train cars. He amassed a fortune that, if it was in 2006 dollars, would be 34 billion. He was rich. He wasn't satisfied with just being rich, though. He wanted dominion over his workers. He built a town, which he named after himself, of course, where his workers could purchase houses from him at less than market value. Worked pretty good until the Depression hit in 1893. Then unemployment more than tripled between 1892 and 1894, and it remained above 10% for five years. So naturally, one would expect that the workers would bear some burden for keeping the company alive, but Pullman cut his payroll expenses by 40%, but increased the dividends that he paid his shareholders. Milcher writes, Workers who previously earned $40 a car for putting decorating finish on the outside of a Pullman sleeper had their pay cut to $18. Foundrymen and blacksmiths had their work cut in half. When a group of women workers complained that they received $3 a week in wages, a foreman repeatedly told them that if you can't live upon the pay that you are getting, go out and hustle for more. And the foreman suggested there was plenty of work at the local brothel. He goes on to write that Pullman's rents were as much as 25% higher than those in Chicago and other nearby towns. One woman claimed that after her father's death, the company charged her for his unpaid rent and docked her pay until those debts were paid. Another worker said that he'd seen men with families of eight or nine children crying after receiving paychecks because they got only three or four cents after paying their rent. According to testimony during the federal inquiry, which there was one, into Pullman, workers lacking sufficient pay to cover both rent and sustenance would drop down by the side of a car they were working on because they were starving to death. Workers went on strike. This was the start of the American labor movement. Pullman did not want to bargain with workers. Milcher writes, the true reason for Pullman's unwillingness to bargain was later revealed by one of the railroad car's 
lieutenants. According to Thomas Wicks, the Pullman Company's second vice president, the policy of the company was to refuse to bargain with unions over wages lest they force us to pay wages they see fit. When asked if it was fair to instead require workers to accept whatever wage the company deemed fit, Wicks was unsympathetic. Well, then, it is a man's privilege to go work someplace else. Of course, the country was in a depression. Unemployment was above 10%. But just go get another job. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Right? Because that's how it works. Not only in first century Palestine, but now too. Herzog writes that those with the power, those who keep people oppressed in situations, do it by keeping the working class and the lower class under control with humiliation and degradation. As long as such treatment is accepted, they'll feed into it with their own self-hatred. Empire works because it keeps us fighting amongst ourselves so that we don't have time to question the policies and the inequities. Let's start to notice the inequities. Instead of only looking out for ourselves and what's fair, let's look at the system, how it keeps pulling us apart and pitting us against one another. Let's look to see what's faithful. The vineyard owners kept his power and control because he convinced people that they were dependent on him. In this parable, Herzog says that the vineyard owner succeeded in the divide and conquer method, right? He only spoke to one of them. He used a condescending term for friend that let them know they were not equals. And then he banished him from the vineyard. The saying, take what belongs to you and go, was not a casual go in peace. His workers were banished, serving as a warning to others to keep their mouths shut. So the question shouldn't be from the landowner, why are you standing here idle all day? The question should be from us, why is the system set up to absolute unfair advantage of the owner so that there are still people looking for work at five o'clock in the afternoon? Spiritualized and allegorized, we can hear this parable in the traditional way, right? God's grace goes where God wants it to go. God is generous in ways that we could only dream of. And what's fair to us isn't what's fair to God. God has bigger ideas of fair. But the parable moves us to more when we get out of our own individual expectations of fairness, how do I benefit from the system, and into communal and societal expectations of fairness. How can we change and challenge the systems so that there are no longer vineyard owners that can foreclose on properties and blame the peasants for not having any work? No longer will there be those who society considers expendable. Those who can just do the jobs that nobody else wants. This parable, while it tells us that the kingdom of heaven, the last will be first and the first will be last, and at that point we'll get our individual justice, it also tells us that we need to challenge the systems here and now so that we can realize God's distributive justice. Amen.